uh, I made a decision to go to India. I was invited. I'd never been. made a decision to go to India and preach the commencement uh, service, graduation service for a Christian college in southern India. Uh, it was a great experience, but if you had asked me that year, the following year, the next year, if you had asked me, well, what, what was that trip all about, I wouldn't have had much of an answer other than, you know, making new friends and whatever. Not much came from that trip for several years. But now, 15 years later, looking back on that decision to go preach a graduation service, which is really not my forte, it's not the thing I really do, but I was willing to do it, that decision has resulted in tens of thousands of Indians, Burmese, Nagas, Sikhs, Nepalis coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, for example, Koshilning and Ruth, uh, our friends that we just discussed a moment ago, uh, in Asia, their lives have been changed because I got on that airplane and went to preach that meaning that I wasn't sure what the outcome would be. They've made disciples. Their disciples are also on our payroll now. Their disciples have made disciples. And right now, that batch is learning how to make disciples. That, that's what's happening. You say, well, that's you and you get paid to do that and that's your job is to go do, do you know, things that change the world. Actually, my thesis is the opposite of that today. My thesis is that ordinary people like you and I doing what we do every day, that is how God's changing the world. Heriberto and Mariana's lives were changed. Mariana's, Mariana's the one who was discipled first, and she went and told Heriberto how to do it. You say, well, where did Mariana learn how to do it? Well, Letty Sotelo, Jared, uh, sat at a table with Mariana and Victoria for three days and discipled them in Mexico and taught them the process. That was her decision. She's a public school teacher, not a missionary. Well, in a way, we're all missionaries. That's kind of a Baptist myth. But she's a school teacher by profession, but she said yes to doing something that wasn't her norm. But it was just a decision you made. You had no idea what would come from that. You just knew you spoke Spanish, you could be useful, and you went to do whatever, whatever you, you could do. Now, my thesis is not that you have to go on a mission trip to change the world. It's just the opposite of that. You're doing the same thing every day. You're living your life. This just happens to be my life. But you're living your life, and you're making normal human decisions, and many defining moments come at us unexpectedly. Decisions that are going to change your life are not decisions you sit down and deliberate over sometimes. They're just decisions that come at you unexpectedly, and they will pass just as quickly but they have far-reaching consequences in our lives. For example, that moment of opportunity when a student has to decide if they're going to cheat on an exam or not. It just presented with the opportunity, and there it is, and it's going to pass quickly, and you're going to make a decision right now about what you're going to do. Or the taxpayer has to decide if they're going to cheat on their taxes. Or the husband has to decide if he's going to cheat on his wife. Or the teen has to decide if they're going to steal from the store or not. See, the unemployed has to decide, am I going to put my resume out? Am I going to put myself out? Am I going to get on an airplane and go for that interview? Am I going to drive across town and fight traffic and go for the interview? I know it's not the job. I, I'm going to get rejected. Am I going to go do it? Those are the decisions we struggle with every day. You say, not me. Okay, I'll find you in a minute. Hang on. The worker has to decide, are they going to get out of bed and go to work? That's one you have to battle every day. The Christian has to decide, am I going to go to church? Am I going to engage with the Word of God? Am I going to spend a moment in prayer? Am I going to acknowledge God today? Am I going to identify as a Christian today? And when we have made the decision, when we have decided the little things of life, the decision becomes a very part of who we are. I'm going to say it several different ways. You're being defined by the decisions you make, even if those decisions are never known 
to other people around you. Your decisions define who you are in this moment. The author is trying to open our eyes in the book of Esther. The author is trying to open your eyes that through everyday decisions, God is working in our lives to affect the destiny of people around us, as well as our own destiny and our own family. With everyday decisions, God is trying to move his covenant community further to advance his kingdom, to further the story one more generation. Life is full of seemingly insignificant decisions that in retrospect have changed the course of our lives. Where you go to church is going to affect a whole other stream of things in your life. Where you go to school is going to affect a whole other stream of things in your life. One teacher in one classroom over 12 years of your life could send your life in a whole other direction through her influence. Where you go to university is probably going to dictate what your next job is going to be and maybe who you marry. Your life is a string of decisions. And the author of Esther, the book of Esther, is suggesting that an unseen hand is at work. And the unseen hand is God himself. And God can neither be explained nor can God be canceled. It's very important in a cancel culture. God cannot be canceled. In short, God is the unseen power moving behind human history. The book of Esther is designed around a literary structure called Peripety. I expect for 100% of you, except maybe one English teacher or two, this is a new word for you. Peripety. The book is designed around the literary device of peripety. It's a term that describes a sudden turn of events that changes the outcome of a story. That's peripety. Or as I call it in slang often, plot twist. So peripety is plot twist. Something happens and the story spins off in a whole different direction and comes to a different conclusion. Let's recap last week quickly. The first chapter of Esther puts the reader in the palace of King Xerxes of the Persian Empire. Xerxes has assembled 137 heads of state plus their entourages plus, plus, plus thousands of people at a banquet. You say, what's happening? It's a war council. He's trying to consolidate his power in the east. He is the head of the great superpower of the world, the Persian Empire, which he inherited from his father, Darius the Great. And now he wants to go conquer Europe, beginning with Greece, which his father could not do. So he pulls a war council together to consolidate all of his leaders, show them his great glory, dog and pony show for, for a long period of time, this is my glory, this is why we need to rally, go get all, everybody, give us your wealth, give us your men, let's go to war. 483 B.C., the war council of Persia. Xerxes is a power-hungry egomaniac. Now I want to say he's a nut job, but... For that period in time, he's probably par for the course. But he is a power-hungry, egomaniacal, yeah. He regards his queen, Vashti, as his most glorious possession. So when you're consolidating power and showing everybody all that you own, you crown the knight with your most glorious possession, and you summon the queen... And you tell her to come in and perform before all of the drunken leaders uh, of the realm. But people are not to be regarded as possessions. We know this from the Word of God. And it just so happens that this particular possession, Queen Vashti I'm speaking of, has a mind of her own. It's funny that women have minds. And when you educate those minds and empower those minds, they're brilliant. And they're equal. And they're on par with any brilliant male mind. It's funny that your sex parts don't make you smarter or dumber. uh, Or easier to get along with or less easy to get along with. or, Or anyway, 
And so this one has a mind of her own. And she is summoned by Xerxes. He's made all of these attempts to make a good impression, lavish banquet, look at all my wealth, and it's all wasted. When laughter and feasting turn to consternation and anger, when Queen Vashti says, I will not come entertain your male guests. Matter of fact, the history books say that she is very likely very pregnant with Artaxerxes, Xerxes' son at this moment. They've got the dates down pretty close and said she's probably carrying a baby. I can think of many reasons why she would not want to come. But she says, no, I'm not going to appear before your drunk male guests. Now just think of what that one decision, one individual decision by Queen Vashti spins into a global event. One decision by Putin. One decision by someone spins the world into a global crisis all of the sudden. Once the king's honor has been challenged by her, the full weight of the bureaucratic machine comes crashing down upon Queen Vashti. They will crush her and they will crush any traces of insubordination against the God, which he called himself, the son of God, King Xerxes. Now, it seems like just a random decision, but... I'm going to give you the context. What follows in Persia after the war council and the Vashti incident is he leads them on the invasion of Europe. When the Persians decide now they're going to invade Greece, it will lead to two of those famous battles in history. He marches his troops from Asia and they come over and they go up there to Abydos, you see that, and Lampsacus. He has to cross that body of water, the Bosphorus Straits. It's the Dardanelles. Uh, it's called the Hellespont. It's got like three different names. And when they come to the Hellespont up there, they've got to march two and a half million men across that little piece of water. You can see the land on the other side. They built what you would call a pontoon bridge, the army did. And they got ready to march two and a half million men across there. And a storm blew in before they could get the men on the pontoons and wiped the bridge out. And they had to build it again. Here's Xerxes. He ordered all of the bridge builders to be beheaded, and he had his soldiers take chains in their hands and walk down to the ocean and give the ocean 300 lashes for defying him. Read it in the history books. Happened at the Dardanelles, Hellespont. He marches the army through Thrace, down through Macedonia, down through Thessaly, and he's marching the army down because when they get down to where the blue is, Two of the most famous battles in history are about to happen. The Battle of Thermopylae. This is August of 480 B.C. 300 Spartans. 300 Spartans. King Leonidas, I know there's a lot of nudity. They fought naked in the old days, in case you didn't know. The reason I want to show you this picture is it's hanging in the Louvre. If any of you get a chance to go to Paris this summer, go into the Louvre. There's, it's history and a lot of it's Bible hanging on those walls. King Leonidas, you can't see in this picture, they're carving something into the wall up there that says the men of Sparta are obeying the law. They're going to lay down their lives for their country. There's an inscription here. Leonidas is here and the 300 Spartans are going off to the battle of uh, Thermopylae. Thermopylae means hot gate. It's a narrow mountain pass where you cannot march an army through except for like a few wide. You can't march wide. It's a very narrow mountain pass, and that's the way down into Greece. The 300 Spartans went up and clogged up the hot gates, Thermopylae. King Leonidas led the Spartans up. It's 300 men against 2.5 million at the hot gates. If you watch the comic, it's, not, it's like a Marvel version of this history. It's called The 300. Most of you have probably seen the movie The 300. If not, watch it this week. It's the retelling of this story. And there's a sequel that deals with the next battle as well. Xerxes sent an emissary over to Leonidas and said, You guys are toast. There's two and a half million of us. There's no way you can hold this gate but for a few days. They held it, I think, for four days, which gave the Greek army time to get organized and get ready for the invasion that was coming. This is one of the first big skirmishes. These guys all died, and they knew they were going to die. This is what's famous about this battle. 
the king of Persia says to them, you know, give us your swords. Lay down your swords. And the Spartans are famous for these two Greek words. Molan labe. You want them? Come and take them. You want our swords? Bring it. Come and take them. You say, well, they knew they were going to die. They knew they were going to die, but it's, it went down in history as the most famous battle cry. Listen, armies throughout history from 480 B.C. have picked up Molan Labe and said, this is our battle cry. You want it? Come and get it. As a matter of fact, your Texas forefathers used that statement when confronted by the Mexican army. Have anybody been to Gonzales, Texas? If you've been down to Gonzales, Texas, you guys have it. Flip to the next one. There, here was fired the first gun of Texas independence, 1835. Flip back to the other one. The Mexican army said to the Texans in Gonzales mission, give us the cannon. Their response, Molan Labe. If you want it, come and take it. Not come and get it, not come and we'll give it to you. Come and see if you're man enough to take it, is what they're saying. The battle is on. Now, that's the Battle of Thermopylae. It's quite famous, and it influenced Napoleon, the Texas Revolution. It influenced all kinds of history, okay? The 300 Spartans died, but it slowed the Persians down enough that Greece could regroup. He comes barreling, Xerxes comes barreling through Greece, and what's going to decide the day, ultimately, the war, is a naval battle. This is the Battle of Salamis, fought in September, 480 B.C. So, 300, the Battle of Thermopylae, August, the next month, September, they've marched down the peninsula, and now they're going to have a naval battle, the Battle of Salamis, September, 480 B.C. The Greeks are now led by their king, Themistocles, against the Persian navy and Xerxes. Listen to this, 375 Greek, 378 Greek ships against 1,207 Persian ships. They're outnumbered three to one, and the Greeks win the battle, and Xerxes returns home humiliated before the world. He's lost, he's lost, and he's lost. You say, why does it matter? Because all of these events happen between Esther chapter number one and Esther chapter number two. When chapter number two opens in the book of Esther, Xerxes is coming home from battle, defeated, humiliated. He's already got rid of his queen. Now he's lost, and he's lost. He couldn't do what his, uh, finish the mission of his father. He tried the big war council. He's humiliated in front of the world, and now he has to go home and rebuild his personal life. And what chapter 2 starts to tell the story of is him building his personal life and the happenings in court which are nothing but one giant power struggle after another. So when chapter 2 opens, a beautiful young group of virgins have been taken. Let's deal with that. Esther 2, verse 1. Later, when Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. He dethroned her. When the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all of these beautiful young women into the harem of the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. And this advice appealed to the king and he followed it. Now, what you find abhorrent is the taking, the snatching of beautiful young virgins from their homes all over the world, which he rules, and bringing them back to the palace and giving them beauty treatments. They have been abducted. They have been taken by force into the harem of the king. And you say, this is horrific. You're right, it is. And what the Bible doesn't record, but the history books record, is that the Persian Empire also abducted 500 young boys every year and castrated them and took them into the palace to serve as eunuchs. 500 young boys a year were taken into the palace. So he's an equal, equal opportunity monster, at least. And uh, 
These girls have been taken. This is the story that's being told. They're placed in the harem. Now we're about to be introduced to the main character, two main characters of the story who represent God's people. Esther 2.5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Now let me give you some background information. Stay with the story and don't get confused by the names. We're introduced to two of God's people now, Mordecai and Esther. The author has connected Mordecai's lineage to King Saul, tribe of Benjamin, son of Kish, and he's done it on purpose. Mordecai was royalty in Israel. He's a child of the king, a descendant of Saul's line so even as a captive in persia he is serving as a high-ranking member of the persian court the author now presents his cousin or you can call her his daughter a young woman named hadassah that's her jewish name she is mordecai's cousin she has been orphaned in the exile she has neither father nor mother and now uh, her cousin mordecai clearly much older than her, has raised her as his own daughter. She goes by the name of Esther. She does not use her Jewish name, Hadassah. She goes by the Persian name Esther. Mordecai is a tribute to the Persian god Marduk, the god of heaven and earth. Esther is an anglicized version of Ishtar, the goddess of love and war is what they called Queen Esther, the goddess of love and war. All right, so you get the story. Mordecai has raised Esther as his own daughter. The Bible is very clear to point out she has a lovely figure. She is beautiful. I think Jeremy preached about this as we were going through some of the other characters. The Bible rarely, you, you taught us this, rarely includes physical attributes of the characters in the Bible. There's very few Bible characters you have any idea what they look like. The Bible doesn't describe what they look like. And if the Bible does take the time to describe physical attributes, it is always pertinent to the story. That's what you taught us. And that is the correct teaching. And so now the Bible author is making real pains to make sure you slow down and create something in your mind that says she is very beautiful. She has a lovely figure. On a scale of 1 to 10, you're going to find out she's an 11 and a half. Okay? That's what the story's going to reveal. She's been taken by the king's men into the custody of the harem. Let me read 2.8. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had the charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Now, the author is going to three times tell you in succession here that she won the favor of someone, which says to me she's not just a pretty face. She's not just an empty head. Uh... This is what the outward says. All you notice is her beauty. There's something more going on behind those eyes. She has won the favor of the head of the harem. She's about to win the favor of the king. She's going to win the favor of everybody she comes in contact with. Esther 2.10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background. No one knows she's a Jew. Because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Now, I'm going to let you wrestle for a minute with why her father, adopted father, 
has told her, don't reveal that you're a Jew. You're in court. You've been taken into the harem. Use Esther as your name. Do not tell anybody that you're a Jew. Why at this point do you think that he has given her that instruction? And then it says, every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. He's continually checking on her. Now, Esther, what we know in the story is at this point, she has a dual identity that no one in Persia knows about, only you, the reader, know about. So you know a secret that no one knows at this point. This woman, taken to the harem, has a double identity. It's almost like a spy story, isn't it? Two names, Esther 2.12. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Now, this is the only good thing I see in the whole story right here. Twelve, Christy, you're shaking your head. 12 months spa. 12 months of spa days. What am I going to do today? A massage. What am I going to do today? Another massage. What am I going to do tomorrow? How about the massage? You know? Yeah, 12 months of beauty treatments, 12 months of spa days. And then it tells you six months with oil of myrrh, six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king, twice mentioned now. Anything she wanted was given with her to take from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go there. And in the morning she would return to another part of the harem. Now that she slept with the king, now she's elevated from just this to something else. Now she goes to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch in charge of the concubines. She would not return again to the king unless she was asked for by name. Unless she pleased the king so much that she made an impression in his mind that he knows her name. Now you say, well, how hard could it be? Well, Solomon had a thousand... 300 wives, 700 concubines. You think you... I can't keep your kids' names straight. I can't remember birthdays. I have too many relationships in my life now. Can you imagine? No, you can't imagine. You don't even want to imagine. But unless the king remembered your name, you couldn't get back into the palace after this. He had to summon you by name. So here's the story up till now. Each woman has a 12-month spa beauty program, 12 months of instruction on how to please a man. Again, I, I'm sorry for the PG-14. It's a 12-month Kama Sutra course. It's a 12 months on how a young woman can please the king of the world. It's clearly a sex contest as much as it is a beauty contest. And so the women are being coached for their big night when they get to go and be with the king and they're encouraged to take with them anything from the harem, which is probably something for erotic entertainment is what's being implied in the story. I can't over-explain because of the format, but the verb in Hebrew that is translated in the English to go to the king, it'll be used three times in this text. She had to go to the king. It's a double entendre in the Hebrew language. It is the common idiom uh, to explain sexual relations. Okay, That's exactly what's happening in the text. I'm reading now from verse 15. And when the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abigail, to go to the king. Let me get rid of the parenthetical and read it. When the turn came for Esther to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. So she wins the favor of everyone around her, not by threatening the structures of leadership. She wins the favor of everyone around her, not by threatening the structures of leadership, but by compliance by listening, by pleasing those who are in charge. Yet, when the author keeps saying she won their favor, she won their favor, she won their favor, the word won is the author's clue that uh, she is more independent than it might appear on the surface level. Okay? 
this is a complicated woman in a complicated situation. Verse 17. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other woman, women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. And he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. All right, so the depressed, sulking, defeated king now is, he got a smile on his face again. And we see he's throwing a royal banquet. I told you last week, the royal banquet is one of the motifs of the book of Esther. And almost every scene will have a royal banquet, which leads now to the next scene, the assassination attempt. The assassination, Esther 2.21. During this time, Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate. He's a palace official, her dad. He's sitting in the king's gate. And Bigthana and Tiresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, they became angry at the king, and they conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Mordecai just happens to be sitting around the corner listening to the conversation. Mordecai found out about the plot to assassinate Xerxes, and he goes and tells his daughter, Queen Esther, who in turn reports it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. Now, your old King James Bible uses the word hanged. It's not the right word. They're impaling people through the stomach, through the anus, sometimes out the mouth on sharpened poles. You're going to find out next week that one of those poles is 75 feet tall. They're going to make a big impression, okay, about how they're doing this. Now, let's summarize. Mordecai tells Queen Esther. Queen Esther tells King Xerxes. She says, Xerxes, here's how I know about this information. It's my dad Mordecai that just saved your bacon, sir. The Persians are meticulous record keepers. They write everything down. You'll see all throughout this story, people are writing and writing and writing and writing in multiple different languages. So someone is writing all of this down in the record books that the king's life was saved because Esther tipped him off and and it was Mordecai that tipped her off and Mordecai saved the king's life. So the event is recorded in the Persian records. It'll be pertinent next week. Normally someone who saved the realm through acts of heroism was rewarded. They were rewarded with tax exemption status for life. That's a pretty good one, isn't it? They were rewarded with promotion in court. You move right up like a Daniel to the number two or a Joseph to the number two. You move right up in the ranks in court. And such heroes who saved the life of the king and saved the realm were exempted from bowing down to other dignitaries. Makes sense, doesn't it? You save the life of the king, you don't have to bow to anybody. Yeah, you're, 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 you're an honored hero in our, in our court. That's normally what would happen. Yet, in the case of Mordecai, who has saved the king's life through some giant oversight, Xerxes forgot to reward him. It's gone completely unacknowledged from the king to Mordecai. You say, why do I care? You'll care next Sunday. Chapter 3 begins with the promotion of a new character who is unknown to the reader at this point, but he is the villain of the story. So you're about to find the bad guy now. His promotion to the second in the realm comes right after the failed assassination attempt. Mordecai doesn't get elevated. The wicked villain Haman gets promoted, which leads to a holocaust. So let's focus on Holocaust for a moment. Esther chapter 3, verse 1. And after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, the son of Hamaditha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. All of the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down and pay honor to Haman. 
Now, the altar has done something clever, and I need to tell you what, you're being manipulated in the background if you don't know it. The altar has done something cleverly. He has already called Mordecai a son of King Saul, okay? And now he introduces the villain, Haman, who is an Agagite. He's a descendant of the Amalekites of Agag, king of Amalek. Saul and Agag are mortal enemies back in the day, the first king of Israel. And Saul disobeyed God when fighting against Agag. And it's famously recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 15, which I would urge you to read. And Saul disobeyed God in that battle, but he did defeat Agag and the Amalekites, but he kept all the spoils of war for himself. And Samuel the prophet goes out and is furious. And Samuel the prophet points a finger at Saul and says, For what you've done, God has dethroned you, and he will give your throne to King David. Saul lost his kingdom over what we're discussing right now. An ancient battle and some dealings with the uh, Amalekites. Okay? Now, here's why you care. Because now the power has reversed and the Agagite is the number two in the Persian kingdom. They're also a conquered country, but he's the son of a king, so he's royalty in court. And now he's been promoted to the right hand of the king. And Haman is an anti-Semite. Haman has a long-lasting grudge against the Jews. And now that he's in power, he's going to dish out some payback to the enemies of his parents and his grandparents. That's what's happening. Now the author assumes you know your Bible. So when the author mentions this, he wants your mind immediately to go to 1 Samuel 15 and say, Oh yeah, I know that story. If you don't know the story, that's when we give the background. Esther 3, verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the ideal of killing only Mordecai. Oh, that's too small. I need to aim my sights higher than killing one Jew. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews. Now, one Jew's not enough. Let's kill them all throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes, which stretches from Asia to Africa to Europe. Every Jew is to be annihilated. Now, what I'm describing is a scene that has replayed itself out in history a thousand different ways. Just replace the names with Pharaoh of Egypt or Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon or Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria or Adolf Hitler the scene has played out many times. Because of where you live in history, the most famous event like this that you would know of is the event from 1938 known as Kristallnacht, the German word for the night of broken glass. The night of broken glass was an organized, it was a pogrom, it was an organized massacre of the Jews carried out by the Nazi party on the night of November the 9th 1938, which launched the Holocaust of the Jews. The name Kristallnacht means shards of broken glass, broken glass night. And because when they woke up the next morning, these were the scenes all over Germany and Austria and Czechoslovakia. The night of the broken glass. On this night, the Nazis destroyed 267 synagogues on one night, Austria, Germany, and Czechoslovakia. 7,000 Jewish businesses were damaged. 30,000 Jewish men were incarcerated in concentration camps, and hundreds were murdered. Kristallnacht was the kickoff of the final solution, the Holocaust, which would murder 6 million European Jews. This is exactly what Haman has in mind. November the 9th, 1938. Except we're sitting in the 480s B.C. and he's got to figure out exactly what night and what month. And that's what he's wrestling with right now. What night and what month am I going to launch my own Kristallnacht in the Persian Empire? So, while he's wrestling with when to approach Xerxes, he takes dice they have the months of the year and the dates. One die, two are dice. In their language, one is pur, P-U-R, 
to our Purim. He takes the Pur, the Purim, and he <laughs> rolls the dice. And when he figures out what the date is, that's when he's going to launch his assault on the Jews. Now, before we proceed with the next ten minutes, let me caution something here. The whole kingdom bowed to this man. The whole kingdom bowed except for one man. Haman could not see the thousands bowing. He could only see the one man standing. Now I want this to be personal for you. Sometimes we get so upset about the one person who doesn't like you. Sometimes we get so upset about the one person who doesn't show up at our event. Sometimes we get so obsessed about the one person who doesn't show us love. When actually we're surrounded by a multitude of people who do love us and who do care about us and who do want to be our friends and who do honor us, don't be consumed by the one, okay? Don't be Haman is what I'm saying to you. If you find yourself angry at somebody because they didn't give you a thumbs up when you've got 137 likes, let it go. Don't let it destroy your life, okay? Esther 3.7, in the twelfth year of Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, this is Passover month, the purr, here we go, here's the dice, that is the lot was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar, and Haman said to King Xerxes, now he's having his official meeting, King, I want to propose something. There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples of the provinces of your kingdom, and they keep to themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of our people. They do not obey the king's laws. And it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them anymore. There's some bad people in your kingdom. So if it please the king, verse 9, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give you 10,000 talents of silver to put in the royal treasury. This is an exorbitant sum of money. I've heard some people say this is 300 tons of silver. You just wasted all your money trying to invade Greece and you're out millions and millions of dollars. Don't sweat it. You let me carry off my Kristallnacht and we'll take the money from these Jews and I'll personally give you uh, silver from my own bank account to reinforce your treasury, King. Esther 3.13. Uh, the king said, oh, sorry, 3.11, sorry. Keep the money and do with the people as you please, the king tells him. Get rid of these bad actors, keep your money, and you just go ahead and annihilate them if that's the right thing to do. The king is continually being portrayed by the author as a puppet who's being manipulated by all the leaders around him. Okay? 13. Dispatches were sent by courier to all the king's provinces in order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all Jews. You say it can't happen. It, has, it happens all the time. This is just one telling of how many times it's happened in history. The dispatches were sent, kill, annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, one Kristallnacht, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar, plunder their goods. Okay, so a holocaust is set in motion. And now we come to the point in the story where you realize, wow, we, we need a hero. <laughs> it's a bad dude in a bad situation, and there's about to be a holocaust this is Europe in 1938. We need something to happen here. But in our case, it won't be a hero. It'll be a heroine. Esther chapter 4, verse 1. And when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, Jewish sign of weeping. He put on sackcloth and ashes. He went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one can enter in sackcloth to the king's presence. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ash. So the whole kingdom's in mourning. One verse in here says, And Susa was bewildered. Everybody's scratching their heads saying, What is this crazy Haman doing? These people are not our enemies. They're our neighbors. We buy bread at their bakery. We fellowship with our kids, play together at the park. This is a head-scratcher. What is going on? Esther has not let, yet learned of the plot. So Mordecai, who can't just barge into the harem, he's an official, but he ain't that kind of an official. 
he sends a word into the uh, 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 palace and says, I don't know if you've heard yet, and he gives her a copy of the edict and he instructs her to go to the king and beg for mercy for God's people. That's what her dad tells her. Esther sends a letter back out to her dad and says, Mordecai, no one can go into the king's throne without being invited. There are two axemen at the door, and if you barge into the room, they chop your head off. You cannot go unless you are called for, and he has not called for me for 30 days. I have not seen the king's face. So Mordecai sends another word back. Let me read verse 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. She instructed him, all of the king's officials and the people of the provinces know if any man or woman approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law. They will be put to death unless the king extends a golden scepter and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to the king. And when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back another answer. Here's what he tells his daughter, the queen of Persia. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Don't think we're all going to die, but you're not because you're the queen. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. God will ultimately save his people. Do you believe that? You're his people. <laughs> you believe Romans eight twenty eight. all things work together. You believe God's going to care for his people. Her dad says, God will care for his people ultimately, but you and your father's family are going to perish. Watch the words now. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now, what you may not know is he's quoting, he's echoing the prophet Joel. Let me show you what Joel said. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Watch the words. And who knows? Who knows, God? You don't control God, but who knows? He may turn. He may relent, may change his mind. And he may leave behind a blessing. Esther 4.15, then Esther sent a reply to Mordecai. Go and gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink. This is how I know they're in sync with the book of Joel. Saying the same thing. Do not fat, do not eat, do not drink. I and my attendants will fast. We're going to do the same thing. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Okay. She's more than a nice figure now. Here is a courageous woman. What if you knew your head would be chopped off three days from now if you barged in? She says, maybe. And if I perish, well, then I perish. We're all going to die sometime. Have you come to grips with that yet? If the Lord tarries this coming, we're all going to die. And there's more than one way to lose your life. Some of you have been losing it for years, trapped up in your house, isolating yourself, not talking to anybody. There's a lot of ways to lose your life besides dying. Live. Be courageous. Live for the Lord. I'm not saying be reckless. Listen, I'm vaccinated. I, I'm just saying live. Live. Did I hit a sore spot right there? Some of you still worried about it being the mark of the beast? You can let that go, okay? Let me see if I can wrap this now. Esther has decided to risk her life by going into the king uninvited. That's where we're at in the story. She has no word from God. She has no prophetic vision. 
She has no promise of Scripture for her personal safety. She alone is responsible for making a decision with serious consequences. In short, she's just like you. She's here on planet Earth with no visible God making decisions that are going to have serious implications. Someone said she cannot see the happy ending of the story from the frightening middle of it. That's our life in a nutshell. We can't see the happy ending sometimes because we're in the frightening middle making decisions and we don't know how it's going to turn out. This is the interplay in Scripture between an omnipotent God, between God's omnipotent power and your individual responsibility to make the right choices. God, the author is trying to set up a story that says God uses ordinary events in our lives. Some are happy events. Some are tragic events, but all of those events are forming us into the image of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're a bit confused this morning about the will of God and how that works in your life. Maybe you're like, okay, God, I want to know your will, and you're waiting for some supernatural sign uh, to, to show you where you're supposed to be and, and what you're supposed to do. God's will does not work that way. God's will is being revealed day by day in the unfolding, ordinary events of your life. The test for determining if you will live for Jesus Christ is happening right now in this present moment. What determines if you're going to live for Christ is happening right now, right where you are in whatever situation you find yourself, And God is working in the right now ordinary moments of your life to try to move you from spiritual infancy to spiritual parenthood. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say to you is peripety is in play for you and I as well. Plot twist, life change, pivot moment where ordinary events take our lives in a completely different course. A given event might be good, a given event might be bad, a given event might be mixed blessing. And most often you will not be able to evaluate the significance of a single event until much later in your life when you look backwards. Looking forward, you can't see the forest for the trees, typically. You just make the decision right in front of you as best you can. It'll be later when you turn back and look that you'll see the path so clearly that God has brought you down through those decisions. You are supposed to be living peripety in action. Even when you're confused and you're not sure what to do, listen to what I'm saying very clearly. Don't tune me out now. It's the most important part. Even when you're not sure what to do, life goes on. We're going to work tomorrow. The planet is not going to stop spinning Because we lose a loved one, or because we get sick, or because we get laid off, or because our kids rebel, or because we have a relationship bump in our marriage, life goes on. We are growing to Kroger, fortunately not H-E-B or anything better, but we're going, and we're going to get groceries, and we're going to live our lives, and we're going to, the planet is not going to stop because of the bumps in the road that you're experiencing, and we have to learn to move forward. We have to learn that life goes on and we have decisions to make this week. And we must learn how to live in a post-Christian America. Some of you are still living in the fantasy that we're going back to the 1950s. It isn't going to happen. This is post-Christian America now. You're on the mission field. You're not going to be the majority voice. I'm shocked by the court, honestly. Never thought I'd see it. You're not the majority voice. But listen, God's still at work. But you have to learn, like Daniel and like Esther and like Mordecai and like Joseph, how to be a Christian in the world you have, not the world your grandparents had. That world doesn't exist anymore. It's a different world. And your kids are going to grow up in a different world. Give them principles to live by, but they'll have to make a set of decisions that you and I never, never even dreamed we would have to make. 
Now, even when you're confused and not sure what to do, we still have to go forward. This is your time, and this is your place to live for Christ. You live in an age when we cannot rely upon miracles. Most of you will never see one. So you have to make decisions. We live in an age right now where God is unseen. Now, I'm not saying you can't see his effects, but you've never seen him. Jesus even told his own apostles, Blessed are you who see me and believe, but there's coming people who will believe, and they've never seen me. They're even more blessed. That's you. We live in an age when we do not see God. We live in an age where God's people are morally ambiguous. We live in an age where our motives as God's people are often mixed motives. We're often doing the selfish thing, not the kingdom thing. Our hearts are not always devoted to covenant obedience. And yet, God's people are still living in the reality of the ultimate plot twist. That God has reversed the course of our lives, not because of our own merits, but because of the love He has lavished upon us in Jesus Christ. God is working in the secular and ungodly course of human events to save His covenant people and bring all the history to culmination in Jesus Christ. God's kingdom will be advanced. My question this morning is, are you going to be one of the people who advance it? I'm saying to you, I believe God is at work. Disciples will be made. My question, are you going to be the one that makes those disciples? Somebody's going to make them. Listen, God is going to channel wealth to further his kingdom endeavors. I believe that. You say, well, I I just... I'm going to take care of my family. You know, economy's bad. We're just going to pull back. Okay, fine. Don't give to God's kingdom work. Somebody will. But what a blessing you're about to miss. Somebody will be that channel of blessing. Deliverance will come. Let me put the shoe on the other foot. And just maybe this is your moment to make a difference in history. I don't have it, but I'd love to be the person to write a $5,000 check to Eriberto. And say, go make disciples and turn the world upside down for Christ. I'm not doing too much here in Fort Worth, but I can do this. You see what I'm saying? Wouldn't you love to have some of that credit in eternity in the kingdom of God? That's all I'm saying. I'd love to be a part of that. Like Esther, you've come to this moment in your life by circumstances which you had no control over. And those circumstances are now combined with the flawed decisions you've made in the past. You say, how did I get here? That's how you got here. Things you couldn't control and things that you decided. Don't be paralyzed by past decisions. We all can look back and say, well, that's a terrible decision I made. Okay, fine. Don't be paralyzed by that now. Because even if you made a bad decision, God's bigger than that. And he can even take a bad decision and end up working all things together for good to them. What I'm saying is just give it to the Lord and now move forward. Putting your faith in Jesus for salvation was only the first decision that you needed to make. Now there's a whole string of decisions, a continuous sequence of defining moments as you live out your daily life. And each decision will demand that you either identify with Christ and his people or you identify with the pagans and their people. And we don't often think about it in these terms. It sometimes happens that after someone believes on Christ, they continue to think and live as pagans do. It does happen at times. People get saved, but they continue to think and live like pagans. At decision points, they take the path of least resistance, and instead of making the hard choices to obey God's word, which is sometimes unpopular, they don't do the right thing. Let me close with this. Some of you are struggling with your identity. Let me ask it in Esther terms. How long can you live like a pagan before your true identity is going to show up? 
Esther's wrestling with the secret life here. She has a dual identity. And she was told, keep it quiet for a while. And now Mordecai says, now you can't conceal it any longer. Go tell the king, save my people. I'll perish. Well, okay, you may, but this is your moment. Okay, if I perish, I perish. What I want to say to you is the way Esther resolved the identity crisis in her life was to identify with God's people, God's covenant people, and identify with God. And as soon as she identifies with God and with God's covenant people, you're going to see a new Esther in a few minutes. She is now energized with purpose. Her life takes on a whole new meaning. She is now living for a purpose bigger than herself. Up till now in the story, she's passive. She's doing everything everybody else tells her to do. And from this moment forward, she comes out and says, No, I identify with God. I identify with the covenant people of God. She's energized for a whole new way of living. But Esther had to first overcome herself in order to do what God wanted her to do. And so do you. She had to take some risks in order to fulfill what God had positioned her to fulfill and you are also going to have to take some risks she will no longer be passive for the rest of the story she has now become the goddess of love and war and you're about to see her act she'll be a different person from here forward now listen god put her in the palace in the very bed of the king Xerxes had made choices. Uncle Mordecai had made choices. Esther had really not made any choices up to this point. But now is her time to decide. And like us, she's to come to a defining moment when she must take responsibility for the life God has given her. That's where you sit this morning. This means identifying with God's people, using all that you are, And all that you have to advance the mission of God, that's what it means to call Jesus Lord. And who knows? Maybe God has put you right where you are for this moment. For your family. For this community. For your grandchildren. For your children. For your co-workers, who knows, but maybe God has positioned everything for this right now. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want Christians to really do some soul searching right now. God's Spirit has been speaking to you through this last about an hour You've heard a lot of different things about God's will, how God works, how we need to make decisions. What is God saying to your heart right now? Don't let the voice of God go unanswered this morning. Maybe you needed to be here to hear that the past decisions can be overcome if you've made some mistakes. Maybe you're here this morning to be emboldened with courage to live for the Lord this week. Or maybe nobody at school or nobody at work or nobody in your neighborhood knows you're a Christian. Maybe you keep that under wraps and you're living that double life, struggling with your identity. Maybe you've made the mistake of so many people today and your identity is being a Republican or your identity is being a conservative or your identity is being gay or your identity is being straight or your identity is being whatever. Those are not the biggest things of life. Your identity needs to be wrapped up as the covenant people of God your identity is in Jesus Christ that's the biggest identity marker of them all who are you going to be
I want to challenge every Christian to answer honestly before God this morning. Are you using all that you are and all that you have to advance the kingdom of God? Are you acknowledging that God has brought you here to Fort Worth? He's given you that job as a nurse and that job as an engineer, that job as a school teacher, that job in the government, that job with a federal agency. God has orchestrated your life. Yes, you've made decisions, but the unseen hand of God has been working. And God's brought you right where you are. Live with kingdom purpose this week. See that God put you there, that God is leading your life. Identify with God and His people. If you've never called upon Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's the first decision, not the final. But if you've never made the first decision, pray with me now. Call upon Jesus as your Lord. Say to God something like this, Dear God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. God, come to earth, who lived a perfect life. I believe you were crucified on the cross, dying in my place that you gave your life freely for me to pay my sin debt. I believe you were buried and rose again to be my living Savior. Lord Jesus, I commit my life to you right now. I ask you to forgive me of my sins, wash me and cleanse me, past, present, and future sin. Give me your righteousness and a place in the family of God. Adopt me as your child right now. Fill me with your spirit. You are the Lord of my life. That is my confession, my God and my Savior. Thank you for saving me today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet. I'm sorry for the late hour. I hope your pot roast hasn't burned. Let me dismiss you with the benediction from Moses. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and may he be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and may the Lord give you peace this week. I'll see you next Sunday. God bless you. Have an awesome week.